Well, the passage this morning can be found in your bulletin. You could also follow along in your own Bibles from Revelation 17. Revelation chapter 17, this is the Word of God. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, with the wine of, the, of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And I saw her, I marveled greatly, but the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. When he does come, he must remain only a little while. For the beast that was and is not, it has an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they're to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and their authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord, Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are the peoples and multitudes and nations and languages, and the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire, for God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast." Until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Would you please be seated and would you join me in a word of prayer? <clears throat> Father in heaven, we ask this morning that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We confess that all of Revelation is, in one sense, complicated, that some passages are even more complicated than others. And so we ask, Lord God, that you would show us the things that we are to see. Would your Spirit be at work glorifying you? Would your Son, Jesus Christ, be made more and more prominent in our vision and in our eyes? Would we be moved, Lord God, to confess our sin to cling to you by faith, to see your righteousness, 
and your character and your purpose above all else. And then, Lord God, would we be moved to glorify you more and more through the reading of your word and through the seeing that only your spirit may give. And so we thank you, our Father. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. And we ask that you would be glorified this morning as you open our eyes and you open our ears. It's in your name we ask all of this. Amen. Well, my wife and I and our children over the last 20 years, we've been involved with a number of different renovation projects on houses. We've done that frequently over the last 20 years. And we have done everything in the process of renovating a house, from the foundation to the roof, from the plumbing and electrical and everything that's involved with renovating a house. And there are many lessons that you learn from renovating homes, but maybe the most important and prominent one is this. It's a a lesson that we often share with our children. Very simple statement. It goes like this. Things fall apart. Okay? Things fall apart. So many examples of that. We, we get into a home and we begin to renovate it. And the first thing you do is you park that large dumpster out on the road and you begin to carry things that were once the prized possessions of other people to take them to the county dump. Okay? Or you, you begin to look at their appliances. Beautiful appliances that were once their, their pride and joy. These treasures that they put into their kitchen and now they're broken and they're useless. And they're being carried out to be demolished. Even if you have spent your, uh, a significant amount of time in your own house and you've renovated it, you get to the point where you're like, didn't we just fix that thing like, wasn't that like five years ago? And now we're totally doing it again. Or as spring rolls around, you've, you know this, you, you get outside your house after the winter and you look at the windows and you're like, is the paint peeling on the window trim already? Didn't we just do that last year? Okay. Yeah, things fall apart. The natural progression of physical things in this world is a movement towards their end, towards destruction. And it is a very good object lesson, not only for your children, but for everyone in your life, including you yourself, because we're always inclined to be enamored with or drawn to the things of this world, right? And the conversation often goes like this with your children. I know you want that new shiny doodad that everybody has at school. Right, that new cell phone, that new, the new shirt or pants that everybody's wearing. I know you want that, but it's wasting away. Right? It has a shelf life, and it's very short. And for us adults, right, the newest, latest, greatest automobile. You watch the car commercials, right? And like, you've got to have that car. And it functions the same way as all the other cars do, but that car, that looks beautiful, doesn't it? Okay? One, one person said it would be a great exercise. Every time we're tempted to buy something like that, it would be a great exercise to go to the, to the dump and to just stand there and look over the, the heaps and the piles of things that were once, once the prized possessions of people and say, okay, well, that's the thing we're buying. That's where it's going to be in 10 years. Okay? Everything, every physical thing in this world is moving towards its destruction, and often it happens in a very quick sequence of events. We would be well reminded that things fall apart. This morning as we look at this passage, it's a good reminder to us that this isn't simply sort of a a tragic 
uh, part of the collateral damage of the fall. It's not as if Adam and Eve fell into sin and then God said, well, I guess that things are going to fall apart now. But rather, it's part of God's divine plan to remind us that the things of this world are not where we find our hope. That the things of this world are wasting away. That they're moving towards their destruction. And ultimately this morning, the call as we look at chapter 17 and into chapter 18, the call to the church is to come out. Come out of those things. To move away from those things. To not put your trust in those things. That will be the warning of chapter 17 and chapter 18. So you see the passage here this morning is moving us towards this point. Now as you're reading the passage, you saw a few things. We began in verse 17, uh, chapter 17, verse 1, and it says that one of the angels came and he called to me. Okay, and so if you remember chapter 15 and 16 last week, these seven angels are the messengers of God who are bringing the, the destruction of God. They carry the seven bowls of wrath that are going to be poured out on the earth. And so they're messengers of destruction and of judgment one of those seven angels now has a message for John. And he shows John this new vision that includes these two characters, Babylon the prostitute and the great beast, which we saw earlier. Okay? In verse 3, John says that he was carried to this place that appeared to be a wilderness. The wilderness is this picture of barrenness, of emptiness. And there in the wilderness, again, these two characters. I'm going to try and draw them this morning. I, I was thinking about this. The last like 10 weeks, I said, hey, kids, draw this picture. But, you know, this is also a good exercise for grown-ups, okay? And I'll tell you why. We've been in the book of Revelation about 25 weeks. And if you remember back, you probably don't remember what we talked about 10 weeks ago. But you may remember the things that you draw and then connect them to the things that we've spoken about and the Word of God in, in the book of Revelation. And so... Drawing is often a very helpful exercise. Here's my attempt at drawing the beast. I don't know whether he has legs or not, but I always give him legs in my drawings. The beast has seven heads. Okay? So you draw your beast, give him seven heads. The, the text never actually says whether he has seven necks or not. I truly believe that he does. And so, here's my beast with seven heads. All right, we know he has a tail. This is the same beast that was described in Revelation chapter 13, okay? This is my beast. The text says that he has seven heads and he has ten horns, which means some of these heads are going to have one horn, some of these heads are going to have two horns. Two, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten, okay? I imagine the beast also had an eye and mouths. In chapter 13, you remember he had seven crowns. It doesn't say it in chapter 17, so we'll just leave the crowns off for now. But this is the picture that's portrayed in Revelation 17. This is the beast, and it says, seated on the back of the beast is a woman. Okay? So I'm going to make her legs facing us. I don't know exactly how she was seated on the back of the beast. One hand on the beast. In her other hand, the passage is clear that she is holding a cup. Okay? This is the cup. And the woman. Okay, and if you read the passage, <laughs> you're chuckling. If you read the passage, she's adorned with some fine jewels. Okay, so I'm going to give her a belt and a necklace. Um, and here's her cup. It also seems to be adorned with some fine jewels. 
This is roughly the picture of Revelation 17, okay? Now, listen, vivid imagery helps to bring the passage to life, and we're in a book that is full of vivid imagery. The woman is seated on the back of the beast as described in Revelation 17, and this is great because Revelation is a book that builds on images. So we don't open the chapter this morning and say, well, I wonder what that beast is, or I wonder where this woman comes from. We have been working through the book, and we know who these characters are, okay? So uh, this is the beast, we said in Revelation 13, represents worldly powers. And if you are sitting here saying, well, how do we get to that conclusion? Go back and listen to the sermon from Revelation 13. We're introduced to the first beast there, and we said there's lots of things that this could represent, but we know at the very least it's a portrait of the powers of this world that try and usurp the authority of God and become functional saviors to the people of this world, okay? Governments, whether it be the the Roman government or be the U.S. government or be the world powers today, okay, all assuming the authority and the saving power of Jesus Christ. Now, we talked about Babylon the prostitute last week. We said she's a picture of the people of the world, okay? She's a picture of the people of the world. Now, listen, they got, it's really great. They got their names written right on them like a cartoon out of a comic strip, but this is going to help you to begin to visualize what John is seeing in Revelation 17. You know, the passage says she's got a name written on her forehead. I don't have enough room to write her name on the forehead, but you'll see it there uh, in chapter 17, verse 5. Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Okay, that's the name that is written on her forehead. So as we talk about Revelation 17, we have these helpful tools from the reading of the rest of the book that tell us that we're talking about the people of this world and their relationship to the powers of this world, okay? Everything that unfolds then in this vision is an unfolding of the relationship between these two representative figures. So then look at verse 9, chapter 17, verse 9. This calls for a mind with wisdom. Seven heads of the seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. When he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not and is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast." These are of one mind. They hand over their power and their authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called the chosen and the faithful. Listen, as you begin reading the very complicated interpretation of the vision, you begin to notice a a few things. First of all, these seven heads are, are representative pictures of kings. We'll talk about that in a second. These ten horns are also pictures of kings coming out of kingdoms, okay? So they're all representative pictures of the worldly powers. Now, there's a few thoughts that go on when we read verses 9 through 14. The first that always comes up is from Daniel chapter 7, okay? So if you've never read that, you might want to familiarize yourself with Daniel 7. It's been a half a dozen times in the book of Revelation. We've said, go look at Daniel 7. Daniel 7 is a, is a vision that Daniel receives, and if you remember, here's how the vision goes. There were three beasts, and then there was a fourth beast, all right? And the interpretation was there are three kingdoms leading up to this fourth kingdom, and the fourth beast in Daniel 7 has ten heads, no, sorry, ten horns, 
And the interpretation of, of that vision that God gives to Daniel is, listen, this kingdom that is now being established is this fourth beast, and those ten horns are a depiction of ten kings, okay? And so that all happens in Daniel chapter 7. For that reason, many people read Revelation 17, and they say, oh, these must be the same ten kings, okay? And, and so beginning to fill in the blanks of, of the emperors that ruled over Rome. And that's how we see Tiberius, and then we see Domitian, and we see Nero, and all of these things that are happening to the first century church uh, in Asia Minor, to whom the letters are written, and then in the broader context of the Roman Empire. All right, and that's, that's definitely has been one interpretation of Daniel chapter 7. It's problematic for a variety of reasons. I'll tell you the first. Uh, there are a number of emperors that will come after Nero, I think if you do the math, there's about 60 or 70 emperors that will come after Nero. And so one of the questions is, well, where, where's all of the heads for the 60 and 70? I don't know. I get, that's one place, definitely it's confusing. That's a possible, especially for the early church that received this letter. As they're talking about the worldly powers that are together with or in bed with the people of the world who are uh, usurping the power of God, the early church might have said, yeah, I see that manifesting here among us. Nero, persecutor. Domitian, the persecutor. How much the Roman emperors tried to thwart the early church, okay? So there's definitely that there. Other people have tried to uh, look at the, the authorities throughout the history of humanity from that time, forward, uh, time period forward, and they've tried to identify with each of these horns a different empire. And so if you pick up a few commentators, they'll say, look, this horn, that's Napoleon and the French, and this is Adolf Hitler and the Germans, and this one right here is maybe the Russians and Stalin and, and so on and so forth. Okay, so understandably connecting it to world powers, but let me give you this warning. When the Word of God speaks to us in general categories, I think there's a danger with trying to per- make a particular interpretation that the Bible doesn't clearly give to us, Okay. So if we begin to narrow down our understanding of Revelation 17 in a way where we think we can do a one-for-one correlation, we find ourselves in a very problematic place. It's actually the very same place that the Pharisees of Jesus' day found themselves. They had read the Scriptures. They were waiting on the Messiah. And when Jesus came, they said, no, 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 wait. This is not how the Messiah comes. We've read the Scriptures. We have clearly understood them. And here's how the Messiah comes, right? And so Jesus was not, there was no context for Christ because they had narrowed down their interpretation of the scriptures. That's the warning, okay? So what we do know as we move forward with our understanding of Revelation 17 is we do know that this is a depiction of the powers of this world. And I will tell you, there's a good, there's a helpful understanding of time periods there in verses 9 through 14. Some of these kings are prior, some of these kings are current, some of these kings are yet to come, okay? And so we find ourselves in the story of redemption with a a revelation from Jesus Christ that tells us, okay, we fit somewhere into that story. We're in the context of the kings who are yet to come, who are trying to usurp the authority of the living God, who are offering a message of salvation And we find ourselves then in a context where the book of Revelation also speaks to us in our day, okay? So I would say a broad interpretation here of the worldly powers which are trying to be the fake version of Jesus Christ. That's what we see in this passage. Now listen, as we look at this morning, I do, you you can see the handout in your bulletin, I do want to focus on Babylon, 
the prostitute. Three observations. These are practical observations about her that I think are very helpful to the church today. Okay, so let's just, I'll write these out as I go. First of all, she is attractive. Don't let anybody tell you anything different. She is attractive, okay? The picture of Babylon the prostitute from Revelation 14 all the way through this, chapter 17, and even into chapter 18, is that she's attractive and she's appealing. Look at what the passage says, and there's a strange thing that happens in this chapter in verse 6. Look at verse 6. This is John's little brief commentary. John sees this vision, and what does he say? When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? Okay? When you read that, if you thought, well, that's a little bit strange. Okay? John has just seen Babylon the prostitute who is about to be destroyed, who represents evil humanity in this world, and it says that he marveled at her. And the angel sort of seems to rebuke him. John, why do you marvel? Okay? As G.K. Beale was preaching through this passage, he stopped there and he said, um, you know, the more you read that, especially in the original language, the more you get the impression that John was almost enticed by her. Okay? That she ap- appeared to to him to be very enticing or appealing or even attractive. I'll write, I'll write the Greek word up there so you have it and you can go back and look at it later. The, the Greek word is the word themazo, okay? Themazo, which is it's translated as marvel, but it literally has an interpretation to be to admire or to be attracted to. Okay? It would be the same word that would be used of a young man and a young woman if the young man said, I, I want to marry that girl. You know, I'm very attracted to her. It's appeal. It's desire. It has with it a sense of almost affection. And the idea that comes across in verse 6 is that John is almost being drawn to Babylon the prostitute. As a matter of fact, it's the same word that's used in verse 8. It says, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers of the earth, that would be the people of the world, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast. Okay? They will be, they will have a sense of appeal towards her, a desire towards him, towards the beast. Okay? And so we get the impression and the clear message that Babylon the prostitute appears to be desirable. And that shouldn't come as a surprise. Look at what verse 4 says about her. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand the golden cup of her abominations. Okay, I know my picture doesn't do her justice. You're not looking at her saying, well, she's a very beautiful woman. Okay, very bad impression of what John saw in his vision, but verse 4 gives us the picture that she appears to be very attractive. As a matter of fact, if you take her description in verse 4 and you compare it to the bride of Christ in chapter 19 and 20 and 21, you know what you're going to find? They look strikingly similar. The bride of Christ is adorned with jewels and, and beautiful linens just like the Babylon the prostitute. The only difference, that cup that she's holding, right? the cup of her abominations and sexual immorality. The, the picture 
of the, the, the seduction of the things of this world and of the people of this world and the, the appeal of the things around us that are headed to destruction, the seduction of this world is subtle. And throughout the book of Revelation, it, the message has been clear that, that these things are not obvious and obtuse, but they, they subtly creep in to the Christian church and to the Christian mind and, and to Christian men and women. And they, in a subtle and seductive way, draw the people of the king draw them towards the things of this world. One preacher who was preaching on this, he put it like this. He said, false hopes and false teachers don't go into churches and say to everyone, okay, everybody, I'm here representing the devil. This is false teaching and you shouldn't listen to it. It won't be good for you. It will draw you away from God. That's not how false teachers and false hopes work. They're elusive, deceptive, attractive, admirable, beautiful, warm, welcoming, seemingly trustworthy, and profitable. Picture of Babylon the prostitute is one of attraction and desire. And too often today, many Christians following Babylon the prostitute claim to be following Christ, but are committed to the things of this world, okay? That's one of the warnings of this passage in Revelation chapter 17. Second observation I think is helpful of the woman is that she is intimately, and I use that word intentionally, she is intimately connected to the beast, she is intimately connected to the beast. Uh, everything that we read in chapter 17 gives us that picture. From the very beginning, you might ask the question, well, we've seen the beast, and we've seen the Babylon, the prostitute, we've seen them separately, but now why is she seated on his back, okay? From the very outset, the imagery that we're given tells us that they are now intimately connected. And, you know, there's at least five different images in this chapter of, a, of the sexual immorality that has united the woman and the beast. If you got the picture as you're reading this, man, this is a really inappropriate relationship. That is the image that is being painted in Revelation chapter 17. She is intimately connected with the beast. They appear to be almost as if they're married. They, they share everything together. They, they have been tied together and united in some unholy union. That's the picture of the woman who is seated on the back of the beast. That's something we can't miss, how their lives are intertwined. Now, here's the thing. Uh, sexual immorality in the Bible, in a prophetic sense, is always used to give the picture of idolatry. You remember that from the Old Testament prophets, right? Uh, every time that God speaks about my people Israel, how they've committed immorality against me, and they, he speaks in a prophetic way of their sexual immorality, he's always speaking of their idolatry, as if they have joined themselves to the things of this world, and that is the unholy union that he's speaking against, okay? It's the, it's the very same thing as we read about Babylon the prostitute, that the people of this world and the things of this world have been joined together with the powers of this world in an unholy matrimony that is a representative picture of their union in idolatry, that they together worship the things that were created and not the Creator. That they together, well, in Revelation, they worship the beast, okay? 
that, that they worship the things that they believe are worthy of their praise and honor, the things that will ultimately save them, but that is the thing that ultimately unifies them. That's the, that's the picture that's being painted in Revelation 17. Now, here's the bitter irony of this chapter. Here's the bitter irony. Look at, look at verse 16. This is what verse 16 says. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire for God has put into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast and the words of God are fulfilled. I thought I wanted to write these words for you just so you could see them. These are the, these are the, the words that were just used in verse 16 this is what they actually mean in the Greek, and I think this is helpful because it gives you context. Let me, let me erase the, the beast's tail, okay? The first Greek word is the word miseo, okay? Miseo, it, it's translated in verse 16. It says that the, the ten horns, they hate the prostitute. It actually just means, it simply means to love less, okay? So they begin to love her less. Eremao. Eremao is the word, the next word that appears there uh, in, the, in the passage, and it is the word that literally means to lay waste. You see it says that it, she's made desolate, okay? Eremao. Gumain. Gumain is a word in the passage that means to, it's, it says that it, she, she's made naked. It's the word that means to take off your clothes, okay? Which is, again, it's, it's a vivid image. It's not to be taken literally. It's a picture of something. Okay, so taking off the clothes. This is, this is my favorite phrase of this whole, uh, of this whole chapter. Fago sarks. Fago sarks means to eat flesh. That's a strange picture. And if you're, if you're looking at me like, this is a strange picture, just wait till we get to the marriage supper of the Lamb in chapter 19 when we sit with Christ and we eat the flesh of kings. Okay, it's coming in chapter 19, so be prepared for it. Katakayo. Katakayo sounds really nice, an interesting word. Literally translated, it means to consume. The actual picture that we're given in chapter 17, verse 16, is that the relationship that the worldly powers have with the people of the world is that they begin to love them less, lay waste of them. Uh, I don't even know what I wrote there. Eat their flesh and consume them. I'll tell you what I wrote there. I wrote that they, they take off her clothes, okay? All, all of these words are meant to paint a very vivid image. If you read that verse, you're like, man, this is chalked full of vivid description of this new relationship now that the, the powers of this world have with the people of this world. But did you get the picture? Okay, unholy matrimony joined together. The people of this world say to the worldly powers, you're my savior, you're gonna save me. And as the time goes on, the picture at the end of the chapter is, no, as a matter of fact, the powers of this world are going to hate, lay waste to, uh, take the clothes of, eat the flesh of, and consume the people of this world. And you're sitting there and you're saying, yes and amen. I have seen that in the world all around me, okay? And if you haven't, let me just give you the picture of it. Look at the world around you. Anyone who has fashioned the things of this world to be their God, to be their Savior, if you watch their life long enough, you will see the things of this world consume them. It's inevitable, right? 
you will watch how the hope they invested, the love they invested, the union that they had, the way they were joined together with the things of this world, you will watch as those things eat them alive and devour them and strip them naked and utterly destroy them. And verse 16 says, this is according to the plan of God, that the judgment that we're about to see might be enacted on the things of this world. Okay? That's the picture that's being painted in Revelation 17. Okay? There is not only no hope in the things of this world, but they will utterly devour and destroy you. It's a picture that's made clear from verse 16. Now, finally, final observation about the woman. She is invariably, absolutely, without question, she is headed to destruction. And you might say, well, how do we know that from this chapter? Maybe it's not clear from this chapter, but here's what happens in chapter 18. Chapter 18 picks up with the prostitute who's on the beast. And chapter 18 is the utter, total unfolding of the destruction of Babylon the prostitute. And it is something that the the people who witness and worship God in awe of how he destroys the things of this world. Now look at this, verse 7 of chapter 18. Here's, here's the posture of Babylon the prostitute in verse 7. As she glorified herself and she lived in luxury, so give her like a, a measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, listen to what she says, I sit as a queen. I am no widow and mourning I shall never see. Look how confident she is. As she rides on the back of the powers of this world, as she's joined herself together thinking, this ride will never end. And I have great hope in this. But look, beginning in verse 1, look at her destruction. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his, with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Now listen to this. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. The big message of this chapter is, come out, come out of her, my people. Last week I told you that the message of chapter 15 and 16 is the revelation of the wrath of God so that we might move towards the world with a message of hope and salvation. The message in chapter 17 and 18 is as much as you move towards her with a message of hope, move out of her in your living and your speech and the way you carry yourselves and your identity that the world might say, well, there's something different here, Okay. Those people don't live like those people. Those people don't look like those people. Those people don't have the things that those people have. Those people don't worship the things that those people worship. Come out of her, my people. Listen, there's a long history of God saying, come out of her, my people, in Scripture, right? You go all the way back to Abraham, and God finds Abraham, and 
the land of Ur of Chaldeans, and he says to Abraham, Abraham, come out. Right? You're going to come out of them. You will not be like them. I will make you my people. And then God, a few hundred years later, God says to the people of Israel, come out of Egypt. Come out of her, my people. You will not be like Egypt. I will separate you and you will worship me. I will be your God and you're going to be my people. Okay? Then they're carried into captivity into Babylon and there's a remnant remaining and God says, come out of her. Come out of Babylon. Come out of her. You, you are to be my people. Come out. Disassociate. <laughs> be not like them. You're to be my people, right? The message of Revelation is the same message that, that Christ had for his followers. It's the same message of the entire New Testament, right? Come out of, come out of the world. Be not like them. Be, not conform, be conformed not by the spirit of this world, but be conformed by the spirit of God. That he might make you a particular and peculiar people to be after the image of Christ Jesus, not after the image of Babylon the prostitute. The images of the Old Testament are of a physical coming out. The message now is more of, a, of an identity coming out. Do, do not be identified by the world. Not that you have to move, okay? So, I, so what we're not saying is here, you're in Lynchburg, there's a lot of worldliness here, so go move somewhere else, okay? It's not what we're saying. It's not what the New Testament believers heard. The church didn't leave Asia Minor and vacate the Roman Empire and find some other place. They, they remained there. And, and actually, as a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul speaks about this the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual, sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Right? You hear what he's saying? If it means a physical removal from the people of this world, then you would have to go out of this world, and you really would. There is nowhere where you can move where you will distance yourself enough from Babylon the prostitute in this world to be completely removed from her. And that's silly now. Okay, that's, that's not what God has in mind as he speaks in this passage about coming out from her. He is speaking about an identity. That we, the people of God, being identified with Jesus Christ, might be sanctified more and more by the Spirit, that we would be distinguishable from the people and the things of this world, that we would not find our identity in those things, but we would be identified more and more by the Spirit of God who works these things out in us. That we would not be afraid of that identity, that we would not hide it, but it would be prominent in who we are that we are being made more and more into the image of Christ Jesus. I found this really cool picture in church history. I, I, of all the things that have happened in church history, probably my favorite is Polycarp. I love Polycarp. Uh, the old man who was a bishop in the church and was uh, uh, ultimately killed, martyred for his faith. And if you read the whole account of Polycarp's conversation uh, with the people who martyred him, uh, it's a really interesting story, and what was happening at the end of Polycarp's life as they were about to kill him was they kept giving him the opportunity. If he would recant his faith in Christ and worship the emperor, they would give him a swift death. And so first of all, they said, well, you know, we're going to burn you at the stake, Polycarp. If you don't want to be burned, simply you know, worship the emperor. And Polycarp was like, okay, don't be silly. I'm not going to do that. Then they threatened him to be fed to the beast, and they said, okay, we're going to we're going to feed you the dogs, and they're going to rip you limb from limb, and you're going to suffer. If you want to save yourself from that, just worship the emperor. Okay, deny the Lord Jesus Christ, worship the emperor, just do it publicly one time, and then, you know, we'll, we'll give you a swift death. And 
I love all the things that he says, but this was kind of a helpful statement, I thought, for the passage this morning. Here's what is recorded that Polycarp said once they said, all right, we're going to burn you at the stake. This is what he said. He said, you threaten me with fire, a fire which burns for an hour, and then it will be extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment that is reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. Okay? That was, that was his answer. And, and you, you see in his voice as he reflects on the fire that's about to burn him, he says, that fire will burn for an hour and then it will be extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire and the torment that will burn for an eternity against the ungodly. Right? And Polycarp had in his vision this very thing. That the things of this world are moving to destruction, right? And the warning of God is very simply this. Come out of her, my people. Come out of her, my people. Don't be associated with her and the things that she does. Disassociate, separate yourselves, be identified with Christ and the Spirit of God. Why? Because it appears from Revelation 17 that those things will draw you in. And not only will you be sucked into the deeds of Babylon the prostitute and the beautiful, attractive things that she does, not only will you be sucked into that, but you'll be sucked into the judgment. Right? The, the warning is come out of her lest the judgment of God also come for you. Lest you, my people, also experience God's judgment, come out of her. Be separated from her. So the encouragement this morning is that Listen, this is what Christ Jesus has come to die for. That a people might be, might be separated from the world by the blood, by his blood, by the blood of Christ Jesus. A people for God's own possession might be separated out. A, a marvelous inheritance for him that they not, might not walk in the darkness, but they might walk in light by his spirit. This is what Christ Jesus has come to do, to separate us from the world. By his death on the cross and his raising again with victory, that we might not walk in these deeds, but we might walk in the deeds of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. This is the call of Christ for the church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this passage. Lord, we confess it is a complicated text. There are many things that are not crystal clear to us. But I thank you for that, God. I thank you for mystery. I thank you that Revelation, maybe more than anything else, reminds us that our minds are limited and finite. We don't discern the beginning from the end. We don't understand the perfect will of you, God the Father. We don't understand even our own hearts, nor do we know the depths of sin. Nor can we comprehend the damage that has been done by our own rebellion. But we thank you, our Lord and our God, that you do. That you are omniscient and omnipotent. That with you, our Lord and our God, there is no beginning and no end. And you have known all of the deeds of our flesh. You have known all the sinful thoughts of our hearts and minds. And you have calculated all of them and you have quantified all of them down to the very last one and you have sent your son and you have planned a way where his blood would cover 
every last one. The ones that we have known and the ones that we have not known. And how great and how wide and how deep is your love for us. That your son has come to reconcile us. And so we thank you, our Father. We ask this morning, as we think about this passage, would you make us, your children, would you make us to be separate from the world? That we would not live the way that the world lives. That we would not find our hope and our satisfaction in the things of this world, but that we would be satisfied by you. And that we would stand as a witness to the saving and redeeming power of our Messiah who has brought us out of darkness into light. We love you and we thank you. We ask that you would continue to be with us here this morning. In your name, we pray all of these things. Amen.